Welcome to Evolutionary Exchanges, a podcast from Evolution Partners, which dives deeper into the lives of our team and guests. Our goal is to go beyond what you can find online and to introduce you to our firm and some of the issues that we're helping to address. You'll hear about some of the extraordinary work they're involved with, as well as gaining insight into who they are. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Evolutionary Exchanges and the next episode in our cultural mini-series. Evolution Partners is a global firm with locations in Hong Kong, London, Paris, and Sydney, and we're hoping to extend even further very soon. And with this global presence comes a global team. And the reason we wanted to start this mini-series is because we want to celebrate all the different cultures, languages, and experiences within our team. My name's Alex Zelkachechian. I'm an analyst here. And yes, we'll get to where that name comes from in a bit. I'm so lucky to be joined by some of my colleagues today. So firstly, Hannah Smick, who's another analyst here. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Alex. I'm also joined by Dimitrios Perdikoulis, who is the head of operations here. Hello, Dimitrios. Good to see you again. Hi, Alex. Great to speak with you again. And finally, David Powell, who is our founder and managing partner in the Hong Kong office. Hi, David, and welcome to Evolutionary Exchanges. Hi, Alex. Very glad to be here. So let's start with you. Um, You were born and raised in the UK, but now live in Hong Kong and started your company in Hong Kong. And I know that you've lived and, and worked in multiple countries around the world. So could you talk to us a bit about what that cultural experience is like. Yeah, sure, Alex. I mean, I've, I've actually only lived in the UK and Hong Kong, but I've spent a lot of time working on a fly-in, fly-out basis in lots of different countries. I spent the first 40 years of my time in the UK living a very stereotypical British upbringing. I have spent a lot of time working in places such as Russia, the Middle East, um, the US and Asia, but very much in a fly-in, fly-out basis. And you know, whilst you get to appreciate the things that different countries and different cultures have to uh, offer, you only really get to scratch the surface. You tend to see an airport, a hotel and an office, and you don't really get to delve into the depths of the culture itself. So I moved to Hong Kong about 10 years ago. And uh, you know, one of the attractions for me about moving to Hong Kong was the fact that it's a multicultural city. It's in Asia. There's a huge melting pot of cultures uh, from all over East Asia, North Asia, South Asia, as well as um, obviously with its uh, kind of colonial legacy, there's lots of Brits, lots of um, Australians as well. So it's a a great place to be. But 95% of uh, the population in Hong Kong is Chinese. And so the Chinese culture permeates everything. And that, that's, that's great. So that's from you know, things like food, which are very obvious to, to language. So the, you know, the, the language I hear every day is Cantonese. Um, everything I see is written is in Chinese, whether that's being the traditional Chinese or, or simplified. And, and that for me is actually, whilst Hong Kong is a great place to, to live, one of the barriers I've personally found is a language barrier in that I do not speak Cantonese. I speak enough to order some food and direct taxis, um, but I've never really got to grips with, with the Chinese language. My kids have been speaking Mandarin since they could really speak English, but I, I haven't. And I think that is one of the things that if you can get to some level of conversation with people locally, then that does help and improve your experience. I do feel being an expat in Hong Kong, and I still feel as though I'm an expat, I still think I'm a bit bit of a tourist. I do think uh, that uh, not speaking the language is one of the challenges I've found. I mean, Hannah, you studied Spanish at at university and obviously spent some time abroad. How did you find living and and working in Spain and how did the language change your experience or how do you think it added to your experience? Yeah, so as you said, I studied Spanish at university and was able to have a year abroad in that time where I could go to Spain and experience that culture firsthand. And as yeah, as a language student, I've always been interested in that relationship between language and culture. I agree with what you just said in that I do think 
language functions as a gateway to culture. I think culture to some extent shapes our views and our values and the way that we interact with other people. And language is a tool that enables us to express those views and values and to have those interactions. So I do think that learning another language or being able to speak another language can enable you to have a deeper connection with or a deeper understanding of different cultures. I think that's probably the case on quite a basic level in the sense that you're able, of course, to speak to people from different cultures in their own language and to get to know them, which is what I was able to do on my year abroad living in Spain. But I think a challenge that comes with that and is something that I certainly experienced and that's something that I think other people learning a language can probably relate to is the difficulty of expressing your personality in a different language. I think that comes on a basic level in the sense that if you can't speak a language fluently, it's of course more difficult to communicate and to express yourself. And you can't do that as easily as you would in your native language. But I think there's a cultural level to that as well in that your personality shifts a bit based on how what you say is received. So I think an example for that would be humour. So if you say something in one language, it might be perceived as funny, but in another language or another cultural context, it could be taken to be quite rude or abrupt. And I think that taps into the idea that language is imbued with cultural values and that you can't really separate a language from its culture and I think it's quite interesting to think about the impact that language and culture can have on one's personality as it impacts something as fundamental as what we say and how we say it and I think it's quite important to have an awareness of that. I think another point that I'd probably make about how language kind of serves as a gateway to culture would be on a more of a linguistic level in the sense that grammar and structure of languages can convey different perspectives that come with different cultures. So for example, some languages have gendered nouns, like Spanish, uh, where certain nouns or objects are masculine or feminine. And I think research shows that there's a tendency for speakers of languages with gendered nouns to ascribe qualities that they associate with masculinity and femininity to objects that are grammatically masculine or feminine. I think that's an example of how the way that language is structured and different cultural values and perspectives can influence the way people perceive the world around them. And I think the same can be said for other concepts as well, such as time, direction, space, even colours, how different languages have different ways of talking about these concepts. And I do think it's a bit of a chicken and an egg situation in terms of whether a culture influences language or language influences culture. And of course, this is quite subtle and quite generalised, but I do think it does show the important link between language and culture and how speaking different languages gives you an insight into different cultures and helps you to develop an awareness and appreciation of the different influences that shape our worldview and perspectives. But um, yeah, I, d- I don't know what you think about that, Alex, because for me, I've been learning a language and gaining an insight to a culture from a bit more of an external perspective. But you, of course, you've been brought up speaking multiple languages. So I know what, what's your experience of that? It's funny. My parents sometimes, going back to that point you made about how the culture and language is very interlinked, my parents sometimes laugh at me because I speak English much more than I speak the other languages because I live in the UK and have studied here for a long time. So I'll, I'll try and transliterate directly something an English person would say into Greek or Turkish. And it just makes zero sense in that language. And they just look at me like I'm a bit of a moron. But absolutely, I I totally agree with, obviously languages are associated with a country specifically, but they're very interlinked with that culture and that cultural identity. And I've had it a couple of times where I've traveled to Greece and Turkey where I speak the language, but I've traveled with English friends. And so people don't automatically realize that I can speak their language and I know their culture very well. And they'll treat you however they would treat a guest. And they're very hospitable people most of the time. But then when I flick into speaking their language, 
everyone without exception will kind of light up and start trying to share their experiences with me and how I know their language. What's my background? They tell me a bit about their background and if we have anything shared. And, and I'm not saying that as an anecdote. That's happened every single time that I've been in that situation. The other point I'd make is the opposite of that is I'm Greek and Armenian. To lots of people, I am the representation of a Greek person and an Armenian person. And so as an expatriate, having lived in Cairo, in Dubai, in London, it's representing the Greek and Armenian values. You never want to take yourself too seriously, but I do take a lot of pride in that. And I'm always a little bit careful to try and teach people what my culture is and how I was brought up and, and because I think it's fascinating. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast. Dimitrios, I know you're very similar in that sense where you're Greek, but you've been brought up around the world in different countries and had to kind of represent the Greek culture. So what are your experiences of being Greek in different countries? Well, I'd say that the biggest and best gift that my brother and I have been given from our parents is really the ability to grow up in very different places because it's enabled us to be very multicultural in the way we think. It's enabled us to connect with people on a deeper level. It has also opened our mind completely to how other people live their lives instead of following the norm, so to speak, by growing up in Congo, Kinshasa and Maputo, Mozambique, and only moving to Greece actually at the age of 15. Very stark experience in comparison to people who have been in Greece for the last 15 years of their life, so to speak. So definitely eye-opening and being able to essentially connect ourselves to our traditions and our history and our shared heritage as Greeks living abroad. So there was always one rule growing up as a child in Kinshasa. You had to speak Greek at home. So we were obviously fluent in English and French at that time, even though we were just a couple years old. But you always had to speak Greek. And we did that because that was essentially a way for us to ensure that we could grow up knowing the language. So I don't write Greek as proficiently as I speak it. I can definitely read it and I'd say my native language is English because we've always studied in English. But when I speak to Greeks now in Greece, they're really surprised to know that I haven't gone to Greek school. Because when they hear me speak, it sounds like you'd expect a normal Greek person who's lived in Greece to sound. So I think really having that awareness of the pride of being Greek and representing the Greek nation and the Greek identity, but also at the same time not allowing that to get in the way of embracing other cultures uh, because Congo and, and Mozambique may be in Africa, but they're very diverse. And then moving to Greece, studying in Amsterdam, going to London, working in Spain. I had a short stint in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. I don't really remember that. And having recently moved to Southeast Asia two and a half years ago without having ever traveled to Asia, actually, if I hadn't been given the gift of growing up in such diverse environments, I don't think I would have been able to be so adaptable, to be able to connect with people on a much deeper level, to be curious, to really want to understand how people live their lives, what they believe in, what they aspire to achieve, how their relationships are in terms of their family, their friends. So it's been fascinating. And I encourage people to travel as much as possible. If you can't live in many places, make sure you travel to as many places as possible because it's just going to be the best education, in my opinion, a human can ever get. Yeah, absolutely. I want to quickly circle back to something David said. David, you said you, you speak English and you can just about order some food in Cantonese. But in the actual world of work, I assume it's all in English, but what has been your experience of how the different cultures actually go about their work? 
Yeah, thanks, Alice. I think that there is a huge amount of difference in the way different cultures approach work. Some of that is obviously language driven, but some of it is is cultures and, and habits. You know, I've spent a lot of time working in Russia, the Middle East, Asia, as well as lots of other countries on a sort of one-off basis. And I think that the thing I found is that the UK, the US and some European countries are much more transactional in the way that they work. So it's more of a question is if the capability and the price are right, then I'm happy to work with you. Whereas I think certainly my first experience of working in Russia, and I had expected it to be very much a similar kind of approach there, but it was very, very different in, in the fact that it was very much about the people I was working with wanted to understand about me and it had to be a personal relationship first before they wanted to do business and I think that does change your perspective a lot there's a lot more personal trust embedded in relationships in Asia in the Middle East and Russia it is all about I want to know you uh, I want to be able to trust you and once I trust you then I'll trust your organization it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have a big brand behind you to create that trust it, it's about the personal trust and personal relationships and I think the other thing I found particularly in Hong Kong is that I can be the only native English speaker in the room and that everybody else is speaking English in that meeting despite it being their second or third language. The first thing is that makes me feel very bad. And I think I'm a very traditional English person. I speak English and as I did A-level French, but it, that very much changes the dynamic in the room. If I were forced, for example, to, to speak French at a business meeting, the way I would communicate and how I'd communicate would be very different to the fact that I speak in English. Well, certainly what I find when I'm, I, I'm in those kind of situations, I speak a lot more slowly. I speak a lot more clearly. Um, I try and use what I would call more simple language. I try not to use the vocabulary I would, I would normally use but something that somebody who is speaking a second or third language and probably has a smaller vocabulary is more likely to be able to understand so you know no jargon no business terminology trying to sort of keep things uh, sort of relatively simple you mentioned the fact that people are speaking english for your benefit i wanted to speak to Dimitrios and Hannah, if you've had experience of this, is something that I was taught by my parents whenever we have guests around. So we have the same thing that at home, we will speak Greek or Turkish. But when we have guests, it's very, very rude to speak the other language that the guest doesn't understand. So what's been your experience of, of that to really make sure that you don't flick into that other language because it's seen as very rude? I've made that mistake a number of times. And my godfather hates it. And I've also been told off by my girlfriend recently as well. I have this tendency to speak Portuguese when I'm with my brother. And that, of course, if you're around a table with people who are speaking Greek, isn't ideal. And we never do it to cause offense. Uh, when we were children, we would definitely do something like this on purpose. But now that we're adults, we have less of a need to do that. And so I have to constantly remind myself that, yes, it's not on purpose, but it's still offensive. And it's very important to not do that because even with people that love you a lot, it still makes them feel uncomfortable. So it, imagine doing that to people who don't know you or where you don't have that rapport with them. So hold on. Portuguese, French, English, Greek, any more? And the first two years, the first two years of uh, basic Russian. Right. So four and a half languages. I hope, I, I hope you don't test me, although I can tell you what my name is and what I studied and yeah. Yeah, nice. That's okay. That's that's a lot better than most people could do. So four and a half languages, Hannah, English and Spanish. Am I missing anything? No, I'm afraid that's it for me for now, for now. <laughs> hey, 
massive respect. I'm cheating, right? Because like you said, my parents just taught me. I put in none of the effort to actually learn anything. So you, you're doing way better than I am, genuinely. Uh, we've got two languages for you. David, English, A-level French, and Cantonese food ordering. Yes, my language skills are probably not what they should be. And I'm always amazed by just within Evolution Partners as a relatively small firm, how many different cultures and languages we represent. I think it's amazing. And it's, it's certainly, you know, I, you know, I speak French very badly now, but certainly being sort of one and a bit languages in the UK is pretty standard. Brought up speaking English and then do you know, one, maybe one or two other languages at school. But very rare do you have people who are native or fluent speakers in more than one language. Working in, in Asia, it's not infrequent to come across people who speak four or five languages. In fact, it's pretty common. And one of the things, you know, we actively look to do in evolution partners is to bring in greater diversity. There's been lots of academic studies showing that the greater the diversity you have in the team, the better decisions you'll make, once you won't be subject to groupthink and, and, and things like that. Um, and I think even without the academics, side of things that just the experience of working with different people in different cultures it makes you understand you've got to take in different perspectives and I think that really really helps in, in, in a business setting I've never despite living in Hong Kong for 10 years I've never learned to speak either Cantonese or Mandarin I think it's just in the too hard bucket but you know I've, I've got two young sons who are age 10 and 8 and ever since they could speak English really they've had Mandarin tutors I think one of the, the the biggest things that we have or I've certainly had as an opportunity is to to live and work in a foreign culture even though part of that experience is diminished slightly because I don't speak the language but certainly with my children they've got a huge opportunity now to be able to you know live and experience a different culture and I think they're third culture kids as well. So my wife's Australian. So, you know, they have the Australian side of the family. They've got the English side of the family. And now they're living in a third culture in, in Asia. And I think that's too good an opportunity to miss out on. So, yeah, I think uh, whilst I don't speak as many languages as I'd like, I, I certainly appreciate those people who have either learned them or, um, you know, by very much luck in terms of who their parents were, have managed then to sort of pick up a, a number of languages uh, through, through their, their upbringing. Yeah. Uh, and actually, that's what something I wanted to ask Hannah. So I mentioned that what you've done is far more impressive where you've actually learned a language rather than just being taught it by your parents. And in a similar fashion, I've got to live in a lot of places, but it's always been in the context of my parents have taken me there and then I've gone to a British school there or I've lived in Greece, which is the country I'm from anyway. So it's also cheating. What was the experience of kind of going to Spain and living full time living in Spain without that? you know, additional safety of like, oh, I'm here for English school and my parents live here and all of that. What was that like? Yeah, no, for me, I absolutely loved it. It was such a brilliant experience and such a huge learning curve as well. I think it wasn't completely without a kind of a safety net support system because I very much went out there with other Erasmus students. There are a lot of foreign exchange students. And so we tend to find each other in the cities for, I don't know, common experience, I guess. But um. No, it was such a brilliant experience in terms of being able to meet so many different people who are at different stages in their lives, doing different things, and everyone having that common interest in language and culture and just getting the most out of the experience as possible. So I would absolutely recommend it to anyone with an opportunity to work and live abroad, because not only from kind of an academic perspective and a learning perspective, I guess also having that option to work as well, that experience being in a working environment for a prolonged period of time was such a huge learning curve. 
But in terms of personal development and just experiences and getting to meet new people and do different things, it was just, it was great. In your work environment, was that fully Spanish the whole time or could you cheat and speak in English or were you full Spanish? No, it was actually a full Spanish speaking environment, which was great, especially in Cordoba where my colleagues didn't actually speak English. So I was very much thrown in the deep end, but it, it was great. I did my first job and when I was interning at a communication agency there was another British intern with me. So occasionally we would speak in English together, but there was a rule in the office that it was Spanish only, which was great for us, really. I mean, yeah, it was kind of thrown in the deep end, but at the same time, kind of, you didn't have any option but to learn quickly. So it was, it was good in the long run. So one of my mates is also a Spanish student and he did his year abroad last year. And he was talking about the difference in his job. He was working in Madrid and he'd have a kind of two hour break for siesta, like lunch break kind of thing which isn't normal in the UK. So did you have that similar experience where you had a kind of different working hours to what, maybe nine to five with an hour for lunch, which is what I guess UK is? I actually didn't. I know that is is very common in Spain that people often have siestas in the middle of the day. But um, when I was working in Barcelona, I worked 10 till seven. So the working day was a bit later, I suppose, but I only had an hour for lunch. Unfortunately, there was no siesta for me. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest Differences I noticed about first working in Hong Kong, they're not early risers, people here. Uh, people will sort of start coming into work 9, 30, 10 o'clock. Most of them are, are, are there. Lunch is sacrosanct. So 12, 30 till 2, absolutely guaranteed that everybody will be off for lunch. You'll get mown down if you're trying to get out of an office building between 12.30 and 12.45 as everybody's coming out. Uh, and similarly, the lift queues at two o'clock or coming up to two o'clock are, uh, are pretty terrible. So you don't want to be going against against the flow. And I think the other thing is that uh, Hong Kong starts late and they tend to finish late now. You know, one of the challenges we have in Hong Kong is we live in a very dense city and most people in Hong Kong live in you know, very small apartments and often those apartments may hold three generations. And so if you're going back into a small apartment where there might be five or six of you or even more in a, in a relative space actually you might get more space in the office than you would at home so people do tend to make use of that space by being in the office a bit longer so it's, uh, it's pretty common for people to be in the office until you know seven or eight o'clock i think the, the working hours is very different some of that is i think purely cultural in terms of working practices i think some of it may just be because it's a hotter country as well and the summer is very very hot here and you don't necessarily want to be outside and air conditioning in the office is free so maybe a maybe a comfort element uh, as well but certainly you don't want to the 12 30 to 2 if you don't go out to lunch at 12 30 to 2 it does mean that you have got some free time to think for yourself because there's absolutely no point in putting time in anybody else's diary because they're absolutely not going to show up yes it's a very different way of working when I was in the UK, I'd be in the office, you know, by eight o'clock at the latest, I'd probably leave at sort of six, six thirty. And largely that's driven by commutes and commute times as well. But then, you know, lunch was very much a movable feast. You would take lunch when you had some time, not having, you know, working around a lunch, you know, a, a specific time whenever it was at lunch. The last time I probably did that was when I was at school. But yeah, so the the, the, the schedule is, is is very, very different. I guess on the, the final point is just to sort of ask Dimitrios whether he's experienced yesterday in, in his in his time. Like, no, to be honest, I haven't. I did work in Mallorca for three months and there was no siesta for me. But it's very interesting that depending on where you are in the world, it's a completely different schedule, a completely different way of doing things. And it's important to embrace that when you're coming in with preconceived ideas 
of what you are expecting to see and experience. And linking back to my previous point, I think it's important when we do travel to other places to leave what we think we know about these places on the side, because otherwise it really impacts the, the experience, which could be a lot more eye-opening. And that schedule is interesting. So like I know for Greece, um, when I lived there, kind of cafes, cafes are open till like midnight one. Dinner starts at about 9.30 and goes on. So people will work a late shift, will finish work at nine or something, 9.30, 10. That's when all shops close as well. There's none of this closing at five stuff. All shops close at 10. All restaurants are open till midnight one. And it's very normal. Like eating earlier than that would actively be weird. Hannah, is Spain like that? Is dinner also later, I think, because you're more European? Yeah, there definitely is an eating later culture there compared to the UK. I think the UK, we just eat very early in comparison to many other cultures, thinking about it. Now, that is definitely true. And on that note, unfortunately, we've run out of time and we're at the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Hannah, Dimitrios and David for joining me. And thank you all for listening. And we hope to see you soon on another episode of Evolutionary Exchanges.